well, if you are feeling weak this morning and you are feeling needy and you are feeling fearful, you've come to the right passage because that's exactly what Moses is feeling this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're making our way section by section through the book of Exodus and how comforting it should be that we find this passage uh, in our laps this morning to consider together. It's an immense encouragement. It's deeply, deeply comforting. This passage has a lot to say to us about the posture of God toward us in our weakness. And it's an amazing passage, and I hope it will be an encouragement to us all this morning. Fear, weakness, those are no obstacle to God. Maybe you feel the way that Moses felt. I know I do. I was told in seminary, and pastors are sometimes told in seminary, pastors, be careful. You better hide your weaknesses before your people. If you don't hide your weaknesses, they will exploit you. I got no time for that. Paul didn't hide his weaknesses. No biblical author ever hid their weaknesses. Maybe you feel like you've just blown up your life, just maybe messed up God's plan irrevocably. If, but if you're here this morning and feel that way, my dear friend, I want to reassure you that you're not that powerful. One of the things that I love most about the Bible is how honest it is about its heroes. It presents them to us warts and all. And this should be encouraging for us as it proves that God enlists people into his service. And we're all qualified for this. Who are far from perfect. The fact that God uses flawed and insufficient people should give us great hope that we too can be useful to God and his kingdom. In fact, all God requires of us is our need of him. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her Jesus Storybook Bible, which if you don't have that, you need to get it, even if you're an adult, and read it. I hope you haven't outgrown your love of children's Bibles in your older age. May I never. She says, God doesn't use people who are superstars. She just uses, he just uses people who need him a lot. That's the requirement. We can never be too weak to serve God. We can be too strong, but we can never be too weak. God doesn't call us because we are equipped. He equips us because we are called. James Boyce, a pastor who has gone on to be with the Lord, said, One failure does not disqualify us from future service. We are often destroyed by personal failure because we have too high of an opinion of ourselves. If we did not think we were pretty good, we wouldn't be so distressed when we fail. But if we think we cannot fail, we shut down, embarrassed and overwhelmed when we do. We want to pull down the blinds, hide in bed, and not come out until people have forgotten who we are. Perhaps until we have forgotten as well. Are you demoralized because of some past failure? Do you find yourself thinking, God can't use me anymore because I've failed him? That's what Satan would like you to think. 
and he will put those thoughts into your mind, but they are not true. Moses certainly failed, but it did not mean that God could not and would not use him, and God used him greatly. Well, before we get into this text this morning and mine out some of this encouragement from this passage, let's pray together once more and ask God to bless us as we spend time in his word this morning. Father, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Help us to receive this implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight in this moment together. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to catch you up in the story where we are so far, things start off really encouraging. The people of Israel are growing and multiplying no matter what Pharaoh throws at them. They are rescued again and again, first through the shrewd shrewdness of some midwives who were preserving the lives of the Hebrew baby boys that were being born contrary to what Pharaoh had decreed. And one of those baby boys that was saved was a boy named Moses. And Moses grows up in a place of privilege. He's rescued from the river, brought up in the court of Pharaoh under the care of his own mother. And then he reaches 40 years old and he launches out and he fails miserably. And he spends 40 years living in the wilderness in Midian where he gets a wife and children and spends time as a shepherd. And then God in the midst in chapter 3, calls him from the midst of a burning bush, which we considered a couple of years ago, or a couple of weeks ago, not a couple of years ago. A burning bush, which was a bush that was on fire but was not consumed. And Moses was, had his curiosity piqued by this sight and went to that bush and heard that bush speaking to him audibly. It was a theophany. It was a manifestation of the presence of God on the earth. And God began to say some things to Moses, and Moses was very, very ready to hear them. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, he said, here I am. And God revealed to Moses that he was going to deliver his people, that the time had come. The iniquity of the Egyptians had reached the point where he was ready to bring his people out through judgment, but he was going to do it through Moses. He says in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have come down to rescue them. Then the surprise in verse 10, therefore go, I'm sending you so that you may lead my people out of Egypt. I mean, this is, this is the moment. God has made his draft pick. He's chosen Moses. He is going to be central to his plan to deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery into the promised land. And how would Moses respond to this call? He asks for a recount and says, send somebody else. He responds by offering five objections as to why he's the wrong guy for the job. God had appointed Moses as the leader of his people, as a spokesman to Pharaoh, and immediately Moses decides that that's not a good idea. Before looking at these five objections, which we're going to consider, they're in chapter 3, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 17. Before we get there, though, let's consider why he might have been so hesitant 
Why do you think that he was so disinterested in this call? Why was it so unappealing to Moses to take up this call from God? Why is he so hesitant to return from Egypt? He seemed so zealous before in chapter 2 when he killed the Egyptian. He was so zealous to get after this sense of deliverance that was on him. I'll give you five quick ideas. The text doesn't tell us why. We have to we have to read between the lines a little bit and read based upon the backstory that Moses has already given us in Exodus chapter 2. Here's a first reason perhaps he was hesitant. Maybe he feared retribution for his crime. Remember in chapter 2 verse 15, he had to flee Egypt because of killing an Egyptian. It says when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and he sat down by a well. He was a fugitive after all. Maybe he feared retribution for his crime, but the text makes clear by this time there's already a new Pharaoh in Egypt. And I'm sure he's not that concerned about what happened with that little Hebrew man all those years ago, 40-something years ago. According to chapter 2, verse 23, we read, during those many days the king of Egypt died. So there's a new sheriff in town. Why would Moses be afraid of retribution? Number two, did he feel disqualified? No doubt Egypt held some pretty bad memories for him. The first time out of the gate, he failed utterly and miserably. He had committed murder there, and no doubt as he grew older, remember he's 80 years old now, and as he grew older and he got more reflective, surely he bitterly regretted that decision. And he felt like he was disqualified. Number three, did he feel like the people wouldn't follow him? Remember chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, when he initially tried to deliver the people from the Egyptians and he killed the Egyptian. Then he tried to go back and he saw two of his Hebrew brothers squabbling and fighting. And he tried to break that up too and they just turned on him. He said, who made you a judge over us? Who do you think you are anyway? Are you the one who killed the Egyptian? And then that's when Moses discovers, wait, I'm found out. He had good reason to believe that people wouldn't follow him. He didn't have a significant, successful track record of having people follow him, did he? When he tried to get people to follow him, he botched it. He blew it up. He messed it up. It had been 40 years. Would anyone even remember him? If they did, their last memory of him would have been his shameful exit from Egypt. How could he lead with such a checkered past? If he did return, who would accept a man as a leader who had served the last four decades as a shepherd in obscurity? This is not a great resume for a divine deliverer. Plus, all he had to go on by way of qualification was that God, who called himself the I Am, had spoken to him out of the midst of a shrub that was burning. They might have been thinking he was burning a different shrub. And that he would have been out in the sun too long. And he'd lost his mind. I mean, he's an 80-year-old man who's clearly losing his mind. He's saying bushes are talking to him and told him to go deliver the people. I mean, this doesn't make any sense. There's no credibility to this. Number four, did he not want the trouble? 
I mean, think about it. He had built a life for himself in Midian. He had tried to put his past behind him, and he probably hoped to grow old and die in peace as a shepherd. The last place he'd want to go was back to the scene of the worst moment of his life. He may have recently received his AARP card in the mail. And at 80, he was not really excited about the prospects of an encore career. He was looking forward to an anti-John Piper vision of retirement. Cruising on his boat, playing softball and collecting shells. I don't think any of those are the main reasons. I don't think it's that he feared retribution or he felt disqualified or he didn't feel like people would follow him or he didn't want the trouble. All that, no doubt, factored in. But I think the main reason and the main, the main thing that these objections are going to reveal to us is he felt inadequate. He felt weak. And perhaps this reaction demonstrates his humility and his awareness of his own limitations as a leader. This section demonstrates the inadequacy of Moses, but more than that, it demonstrates the adequacy of God. Because it, in case you haven't picked it up so far, Moses is not the one who's ultimately delivering the people here. God is. God is. And the theme of these verses is Moses' unsuccessful attempt to persuade God not to send him. God is going to send him, whether Moses wants to or not. So let's look then at these five objections that he marshals into the presence of God. Here's the first one. I lack credentials. I lack credentials. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, sorry, let's back up. Let's go back. We're, we're, going, we're going a little bit too far ahead. Go back to 11. I was reading 13. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So his first objection is, who am I? I'm not adequate for this task. And he's not, and he's right. By himself, he was inadequate, just as we are too. He was inadequate because of his weakness. Who am I? He was inadequate because of Pharaoh's power, and he was inadequate because of the scale of what God was asking him to do, to bring a nation out of another nation. God said in reply to Moses, I will be with you. It's as if God responds to him when Moses asks him, who am I? He says, that's irrelevant. The real question is, who am I? Not who are you. The deliverance of the people didn't depend on the ability of Moses it depended on the presence, power, and sufficiency of God. When God selects people to serve His purposes, He always provides Himself as the insurance of their success and the only reason that they are successful. It never has anything to do with the person that God has chosen. God's response is so different from how many of us might have encouraged Moses, right? Think about it. How might some of us been tempted to respond to Moses' self-deprecation here? Who am I, God? We might have said, 
well, we might have come at this a completely different way that God comes at this. We might have come at this by drawing and focusing Moses' attention on himself and by reminding him of all the ways he was qualified to lead the people. I said, Moses, Moses, why are you talking like that? You've been raised in Pharaoh's court. You were saved from death by divine intervention. God's got a plan for your life. God's going to use you, brother. You're special. You came from a place of inestimable privilege. You have all that you need. You've counted the cost. You are a man mighty in word and deed. You can do it. That's not how God responds. His response was to lead Moses not to trust in his gifts, but trust in his God. We do not help each other by encouraging each other to trust in our gifts. We tell each other, trust in your God. Don't trust in your past. Don't trust in who you are. Don't trust in what God's done in your life. Trust in God. He is the only rock. He is the only strong tower. Not yourself. God does nothing to soothe Moses' self-esteem. Nothing. He does not bring a present to his pity party and says, you know what, you need to really feel better about yourself. You're really something. Why does God not do that? Because, brothers and sisters, the more you focus on your self-esteem, the lower it goes. That's why we have to focus on who our God is and what he is going to do. The exodus does not depend on the credentials of Moses. It depends on the faithfulness of God to his covenant. That's what's operating here. God made a promise to himself that he would do something for Jacob's family in Genesis 46. And he's keeping that promise. It has nothing to do with Moses. It has everything to do with God's own pledge to his own covenant. And that's, imme- that's immensely pressure-taking for us. It, it, the pressure's off. It takes the pressure off. We plant, we water, God gives the growth. We serve God by the strength that God supplies, 1 Peter 4.11, so that in all things God may get the glory through Jesus Christ. Any service that's done in the strength that we supply, who gets the glory for that? We do. God will not have that. We serve God by the strength that God supplies so that God gets the glory. By the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 5.10, Paul said, I am what I am. Like John the Baptist, we all need to say, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. We are called to go and make disciples. Matthew 28, verse 19. But is our hope in going rooted in our greatness? No, it's rooted in two realities. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Because if there's no authority in heaven, and there's no presence on earth, our mission fails, brothers and sisters. You can't convert anybody. You can't make one disciple without the 
the resurrected, exalted Jesus Christ who has all authority in heaven on earth, who can break hearts and bend wills and save sinners. That's it. That's all we got. So do our credentials, does our inadequacy nullify the purpose and plan of God? Not at all. Moses, you say I like credentials. God says, I don't care. (laughs) That's not the point. Number two, Moses has got a second objection. He's not going to quit right there. I like competence. I don't know what to say. I don't have any information here. I don't have content. If I go to Pharaoh, or if I go to the people of Israel first, because I'm going to have to talk to them first before I even go to Pharaoh, what do I tell them? You notice how helpless Moses feels? Wouldn't you, though? I don't have credentials. I don't have confidence. I don't, I don't know enough. Well, look at verse 13. Then God said to him, or Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God answers, as we considered considered this answer a couple of weeks ago, God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. Moses was afraid the Israelites might ask him a question he couldn't answer. You ever been there? Lacking competence, not knowing everything. See, I can't talk to... What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? God says, just tell them I am sent me. (laughs) That's not really, I don't even understand that. How's that supposed to be sufficient? God just assures them it's going to be sufficient. It's fine. Don't worry if you don't have all the answers. Whenever God says, or whenever we say, rather, I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. You know what God says? I am. I am. For everything that we aren't, he is. And then God proceeds, and this is a great mercy. I'm not going to reread all these verses. But verses 15 through 22, well, really verses 16 through 22, is a marvelous detailed instruction manual for exactly what Moses is supposed to say. Isn't it so kind of God to do that? He tells him exactly what he's supposed to say and exactly what he's supposed to do. He equips him. He makes him competent. Not because he's competent to begin with, but because God equips those he calls and doesn't send them without a word. And so he tells them in verses 16 and 17 exactly what he's to say to the Israelites, and he says in verses 18 through 22 exactly what he's to say to the Egyptians. So Moses, your competence is not an issue. Whatever you're not, I am. Number three, third objection. I lack charisma. I lack charisma. People won't take me seriously. People won't take me seriously. Notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. I mean, look at you. You're an 80-year-old shepherd. God doesn't talk to people like you. He says, People aren't going to take me seriously. And God says to him, well, that may be true. If the people don't take you seriously, 
Let me give you some miracles. And he, tell, he shows him, he gives him three signs for what he is to do in the midst of the people to show that God had in fact called him. The first miracle is the miracle of the staff. He's got a staff, he's a shepherd, he's got a staff in his hand. God tells him, throw it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. And then he says, grab that snake by the tail. Now, we don't do that. Okay, don't do that. Boys and girls, don't try this at home. Contrary to what some eastern Kentucky preachers might tell you, don't try this at home. Okay, don't take that snake by the tail, especially because many commentators believe this is a cobra. In full hood, ready to strike. I mean, because the Egyptian, the pharaoh, had on his crown the symbol of a cobra, a snake. And so God is drawing an allusion here to, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the great, the great king, the great ruler, and the snake, the cobra, was the mark of his greatness. And God says, you throw that down, watch that become a cobra. Now you pick it up, and what does it become? It becomes a staff. Political power is nothing to me, Moses. I'll take care of him. And so, but, and so God shows him a second, and he, shows, he says, put your hand in your coat. Puts his hand in his coat, and he pulls it out, and it's leprous, white as snow. Just put your hand back in your coat. He puts his hand back in his coat. He pulled his out. It's healed. What's God showing in that sign? Well, many commentators re- re- remark that in this time, leprosy was the most feared disease in Egypt. It was something that no magician, witch doctor, real doctor could cure. And there was no one that could do anything about this. And God says, I can. I have power over everything Egypt fears. The Egyptians fear this because no matter what they do, they can't do anything about this physical disease, but I can. You saw what I just did, right, Moses? What Egypt can't do, I can do in seconds. And then we have the example of the blood, the sign of the blood. And he says, take a cup, pour it in, dip it in the Nile, and pour it out on the ground. And when it pours out on the ground, it's going to turn into blood. The Nile was the source of life. It was worshipped as a god in Egypt. It provided them everything economically that they could possibly want. It was literally their life source. And God says, I'm going to turn their life source into an instrument of death and judgment. But think about this. I, want, I, I, didn't, I didn't really appreciate this until I was doing some more uh, intense study of this passage this week. But just think about what's happening here. I mean, I've considered the signs before, you know, the staff, the hand, the blood. I, I've heard those things. But notice what God tells Moses to do. He says, throw the staff on the ground. Now pick it up. He says, put your hand in your coat, now take it out. He says, take the cup, pour it out. Everything he's asking Moses to do, he's asking him to do by faith. He has no reassurance that any of this is going to go well. He's saying, there's a cobra sitting right there, grab it by the tail. Ah! And he does, and it becomes a staff. Granted, that builds your confidence a little bit for the next sign, right? You would be a little bit more emboldened, okay? Okay, put your hand in your coat. Okay, at least there's no snake now, okay? And you pull it out, and it's just grotesque. And God says, put your hand back in your coat, and he obeys God's word, and he pulls it out. And then imagine, he's having to stand in front of Pharaoh with a cup of water from the Nile in his hand. And he stands there, 
And he says, God is going to bring judgments upon you, Pharaoh, if you don't release my people. And he starts to pour it out. And you can imagine, oh, let this be blood. Oh, let this be blood. Oh, let the, if, it's, if it's water, Pharaoh's like, woo-hoo, nice trick. Water? No, but if the water became blood. See, what God is calling him to do is obey him by faith. He doesn't get any promises here that things are going to go as planned. All God is doing is showing him that he is able to do these things. I didn't make a comment about this, but if you look back at chapter 3, verse 12, when God gives his promise to Moses, he says, he said to him, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. Moses is like, okay, what's going to be the sign? What's going to be the sign? And he says, God says to him, that I have sent you, that you have brought the people out of Egypt. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That's way in the future. He's like, this sign that that I'm with you is going to be when all this is done. Oh, so I've got to obey you by faith then. I've got to walk by faith. I've got to trust you. That's exactly what he's telling Moses to do. And that's exactly what we have to do, brothers and sisters. We've got to trust God in the dark when we don't have a clear word of what he's going to do or how he's going to do it. We just have to obey him, and that faith has to motivate us to obedience. Number four, we've seen that he lacked credentials, he lacked competence, he lacked charisma. None of that was going to stop God yet. Number four, though, I lack communication. I lack communication. Me no talk good. You know, to be a good leader, you've got to be able to speak to people. And Moses says, I can't even talk right. Notice verse 10. He says, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of tongue. Now, it's ironic that Moses is complaining about his speech. He's been doing a lot of talking. He obviously doesn't have any problem complaining to God. So what's going on here? There's there's various ideas put forward as to what Moses really struggles with. All we're told is that he's slow of speech and of tongue, and according to what God says regarding Aaron, that he doesn't speak well. That's all we're told. So some people have surmised that perhaps he has a linguistic challenge. That he's been so far, he's been in Midian so long, he's probably forgotten all his Egyptian. I mean, it's been 40 years. I mean, I know he grew up there and learned it, but you know, he's not going to be able to speak to an Egyptian ruler when he can't hardly, he doesn't, he's lost his grasp of Egyptian in the second half of his life. What most people think is it's probably some sort of speech impediment that he has, but that's not clear from the passage either. Perhaps what's more likely is he's just afraid and shy and doesn't like speaking in public. If he enjoyed life as a shepherd, you don't have to talk a lot doing that, except for yelling at the sheep to not go somewhere where they shouldn't be going, call out to them. But he wasn't really gifted for this kind of thing. Jerry Seinfeld, comedian, makes the joke that the number one fear of most people is, is speaking in front of a group of people. And the number two fear is death. And so he says that if you're the normal human being, you would rather be in the casket than giving a eulogy. 
Because your second fear is that, but your primary fear would be speaking in front of a group. Maybe that's what Moses is encountering here. Maybe that's what he's encountering, just fearfulness. It's pretty intimidating to not be good with words and have to speak to the most powerful ruler in the world. But God makes clear that this isn't so much a speech problem for Moses, it's an obedience problem. Moses made his excuses, and the Lord responds to Moses' excuse in verses 11 and 12 with this. Who made your mouth? Who made man's mouth? Who makes a person mute and deaf and seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Rather than making this an obstacle, he should make it a source of boasting. Think about it. This is what Paul did. You know, Paul was criticized by the super apostles and false teachers because he was not impressive. We typically think Paul was this monster preacher. He was not. He was fearful, trembling, weak. And he used that as a source of boasting. He says to the Corinthians, who were being tempted to be lured away by these more charismatic speakers, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see what happens? Charisma is dangerous. It can cause you to put your hope in the wisdom of men. But when you have a weak man proclaiming a strong gospel and that gospel saves you, that's the power of God. That is the power of God. And so Paul said, I'm delighted to be a jar of clay that the surpassing power of God may be put on display. As I said on Wednesday night in our prayer meeting, brothers and sisters, we are paper plates holding a great meal, filet mignon on a paper plate. That's all we are. We're paper plates. And what we focus on is that meal, the glory of that meal. We're just a church full of paper plates. And this should encourage us in our evangelism. Anybody nervous about speaking about Jesus? Can I get an amen? Amen. We all are. We all are. Just put us in the right circumstance with the right person. Or put us in any circumstance with any person. And we are fearful. We often fear sharing our faith because of a fear that we don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. We uh, don't have... Listen, just like God did for Moses, God does for us. You don't have to be an orator. All you have to be is a reporter. You don't have to come up with anything. You just tell them about Jesus. That's it. That's it. You don't have to have all the arguments. You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to have, and hopefully this is taking place in the context of relationship, so you're going to have multiple conversations. You have to get it all in at once. And this is surely, surely, surely an important word for us in our gift-obsessed, looks-obsessed, skills-obsessed, achievement-obsessed culture, which the church is infected by. 
The message is more important than the man. Always. When it comes to proclaiming God's word, always the message is more important. And that's what God is making clear to Moses. It's not so much how you speak or if you can speak, it's what you speak. And if you speak my words, if you're stammering and stumbling, the power of God will be with you. Because the power is in the word. Fifthly and finally, I lack commitment. I lack commitment. And now I think we get Moses' refreshing honesty. (laughs) This is the final objection, and it's the deepest one and the truest one. Look at verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Anybody but me. Please, Lord. This this reveals the real issue. For every excuse Moses made, God offered his promise of provision and power. And having run out of excuses, Moses revealed that the heart of the problem was a problem of his heart. I don't want to do this. That's usually the issue, isn't it? That's the issue. That's all the issue is. I don't want to do it. We're simply not willing to step out in faith and trust God. Whatever the excuse, it boils down to a lack of trust and an unwillingness to obey God. God has a plan for carrying out his rescue mission in the world. And we're it. We're not ultimate. The Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ is ultimate. But but God has chosen us. And we play a part. No excuses. No excuses. Notice how God responds here. Verse 14, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. This is the first reference in Scripture that we have to God being angry. Now you say, wait, he's been angry before in the Bible. Yes, of course, he was angry with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He was angry at the flood. But we're not told that. We're told in the flood narrative that that he was grieved. But here we're told for the first time in Scripture that God is angry, that his anger was kindled. Now in other parts of Exodus, we're told that God is slow to anger. And we see that here, don't we? He's slow to anger, but he gets angry. And he gets angry when Moses, after all of his promises and all of his grace and all of his lavish provision and all of his, I'm going to do this with you, and Moses says, no. But I love this too, because it's not just anger. God shows more grace. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. (laughs) Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Look at this. Look again at verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, what would you expect him to say? And Moses was incinerated on the spot, and God started with another man. Right? That's what you expect. (laughs) Finally, man, you've earned the spanking. Gone. But that's not what God does. Notice what he says. This is the anger of the Lord. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? Behold, he's coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. I've already sent him. 
He's on the way. Here we see God's matchless and marvelous grace providing for his weak servant, sending him his older brother who will stand by his side and help him. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. Verse 16, he shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. Now take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. I think it's this manifestation of God's grace and kindness that motivates him to obedience finally. Because here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Fear and threat cannot ultimately coerce your heart, heart obedience. It's when God treats you with grace. It's when God comes down and kisses you and says, you might have think you've blown it. You're not that powerful. Get up, my child. Get up, my child. Let's go. And he, his anger is kindled, and Moses no doubt felt that in the presence of God, and then he's met at that very moment with grace. How can God do that? How can God be simultaneously angry and gracious? It's because God knew that this exodus, this event, was just going to foreshadow a greater exodus. That this Moses that he was dealing with was just going to foreshadow a greater Moses that was to come. That this slavery out of which his people would be delivered was just going to be a foretaste of a greater deliverance from a greater slavery to sin that would be accomplished through a greater Moses via a greater exodus, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus and his call to lead us out of slavery, to deliver us from sin and death, what do we hear? Excuses? No, we hear, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. You say, but what about the Garden of Gethsemane? Sounds like he doesn't want to do it. Oh, no. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Our Lord Jesus was resolutely committed to our salvation without a hint of excuse making. How we ought to praise God that our greater Moses, Jesus Christ, did not cry out, Father, send someone else. Because if he said, send someone else, we wouldn't be saved. For he alone could come and make perfect atonement for our sins and deliver us from the punishment that those sins deserve. Praise the Lord Jesus that he said, here am I, send me. And he came willingly and he laid his life down for us. And he died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God and the punishment that is due the sins of all those who would ever believe in them. Friend, have you done that this morning? Any among us who have yet to close with Jesus Christ, come to Jesus Christ, embrace Jesus Christ as your only hope, it's going to require faith. You're going to have to step out. It's going to cost you your sin. You'll have to walk away from it. But you will gain him who is better than silver, more precious than gold. Come to Christ this morning if you haven't. And brother, sister, wherever you're struggling to exercise faith today, which we all are in different ways, be, take encouragement from, from this passage. God is gracious. Your weakness is no obstacle. Your fear is no obstacle. 
Lean into him. Trust in him. He will carry you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together in your word, which is immensely encouraging to us in the way you deal with your servant Moses here, the things we see about your character, the ways that we see ourselves and our brother Moses. We thank you for his vulnerability. Moses, under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, wrote these words, and he was not ashamed to recount all the ways in which he felt as a failure. No wonder he was called the meekest man whom the world has ever seen. Thank you. May we be that transparent with each other. May we be that vulnerable, not afraid to share our fears, not afraid to share our weaknesses, not put on the facade that we've got it all together, not pretend like we're whole yet, but we carry about within us remaining brokenness and sinfulness and propensities and temptations, all of which you know about. May we welcome one another into those places of brokenness and sin so that we can confess our sins to one another and and be healed. Thank you for this transcript of transparency that we get from your word. Write it upon our hearts and help us to be that way, both in your presence, to walk before you with no guile, to walk before you in honesty and integrity, not hiding our sins, not pretending that we don't sin, but confessing them, owning them, agreeing with you about them, and also to walk humbly before one another, acknowledging our weaknesses, acknowledging our failures, acknowledging our sins. For surely where that is taking place, your Holy Spirit is there. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. And we thank you most of all for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters.